This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich, and I'm here for this interview episode with David Canfield. Hello, David. Hello. Uh, You and I got to do this week's interviews. um, And first, we'll hear you in conversation with Danielle Deadweiler, who had a really strong breakout role on a show full of strong breakout roles, I will say, uh, on Station Eleven. So what would you guys talk about? Um, well, Danielle and I have a bit, have a bit of history, uh, uh, for, for this job in my previous life, I was an entertainment weekly reporter. And I think the last thing I did before COVID-19 hit was visited the set of station 11 that and, is inter- bananas. and interviewed Danielle Deadweiler because it was her, it's her big episode. That's what they were shooting, uh, at the Sinatra house in Chatsworth, California, and then the world shut down, and of course, the parallels between the show and real life were sort of unbearably intense. So there was a bit of catch-up, <laughs> for starters. <laughs> um, and I do think that out of that, I, I had a unique insight into where she was at that point. And I was particularly fascinated by the parallel between her coming back to film after taking a really long break and coming back to film a much more devastating pandemic story than what we experienced. And um, her character's arc, um, because she plays Miranda in the show, whose graphic novel sort of guides a lot of the characters through um, tragedy and hope. And uh, it's it's this beautiful metaphor for the power of art. And um, she is, in a, way, in a lot of ways, a light through the pandemic for the characters that we follow. And... She really taps into that in her performance, and we talked a lot about the intimacy of that kind of character connection and, and how she really brought that forward in her mm. performance, which I am uh, really taken with. As you know, Katie, I, I pitched her for this because uh, I really think she's an extraordinary talent who I'm excited to see more of. Yeah. So, David, let's hear your conversation with Danielle Deadweiler, uh, but first let's hear a word from our sponsor. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after The Regime airs.
We're here with Danielle Deadweiler, star of Station Eleven, uh, one of my favorite shows of this past season and one of my favorite parts of my favorite shows of this past season. Hi, Danielle. Hello. Uh, so <laughs> before we started, we were just talking about the fact that uh, we met years ago on the set of Station Eleven in late February 2020 in Los Angeles. Isn't it crazy? <laughs> we could say we met years ago. Yeah, we met in the before <laughs> times. <We> <laughs> BP. <laughs> yeah, <maybe>. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've been thinking about it because you were filming um, Miranda, your character's big episode in, in the show, and uh, it's a big moment in the story. I remember back then you told me this vibe on set was very sweet and very serene, more serene than it had been. And then you had added there's a little, there's a little hint of rumble happening, which turned out to be pretty prophetic, I think. <laughs> I'm no prophet. I just, <laughs> I just listened to NPR. <laughs> <laughs> that served that served those who listened to NPR well. NPR, I think. <laughs> Democracy Now, the the articles that are on the margins, and you go, oh, okay, this prominent doctor died. Oh, okay, this is happening. Oh, so I was there in Chicago when the first people were coming over, yeah. and they were quarantining them. So I was very, very aware, hyper aware. Yeah, other people on the set, eh, not so much. We're making a show, right? Yeah, we sat six feet apart. I don't think we shook hands. We did. <laughs> so it goes. Um, but more seriously, um, Miranda is a survivalist. She's an artist. You're playing this incredibly rich, and it turned out very timely material just as the world was starting to shut down. Looking back on it, what do you remember about being in that space filming before the set was postponed? You know, I remember being a hermit the whole time anyway. Um, oh. It was like I was being prepared for the rest of the year and 2021 <laughs> and summer 2022. Like I was, I was, I was in training. I remember the way it felt making the show, not knowing sometimes what things were and things changing and, and that being the pandemic experience mm -hmm. truly. I remember glimmers of, 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 of joy being in Chicago and glimmers of being like, wow, we're at the Sinatra house. Like beyond it being Sinatra, it was more like this glorious nature-based space, right? Yeah. This kind of like root architecture and then this glorious greenery. The, thing, the two things that we were like, these contrary things are, are, are next to each other. And then that became life still kind of life it's always kind of life right like yeah these com complexities butting heads and how do you make sense of them not so much but try to move with some grace and i think that's where miranda was she had had a lot of chaos a lot of difficulty and coming to grips with what she needed and who she was and couldn't do that bumping heads with arthur her husband and and so Solitude is the manner in which one goes to reclaim the self. And, and, and then you come out on the other end, trying to make amends, trying to something. And it's like, shit, it's, it's, too, it's, it's too late or it's right on time because you weren't supposed to, mm. you know? And so it's kind of, it's, it's beautiful and terrible to have that be the experience. I gather a lot of people are having a beautiful, terrible experience continuously, right? Because people yeah. are still in it and people can't go out in the world and 
and be outside, right? As mm-hmm. folks like to say, I'm outside. No, everybody's not outside yet. Everybody can't be outside. And um, Miranda learned to consider people in considering herself. And I don't know if we've, if America at least has, has considered themselves in the way that they should so mm. that they can consider others. But we should always still be considering others because our community is deeply, deeply interdependent, interconnected, interwoven. And we gotta, we have to, we have to keep looking at this weaving in order to come out with some real love. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I remember you described Miranda to me as a, a guide or a kind of signpost for people in the post-pandemic world, which again <laughs> was pre-COVID. Um, but, you know, COVID aside, even there's a lot of weight to that. How did you initially find your way into her? I'm, I'm curious. Blind. Blind, blind. I'm blind, David. I'm blind. <laughs> I who, who this is a rapper that do this. I can't remember. <laughs> I know my mind is blank, but... It's that, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's waving the hand in the face and occasionally having some sense of clarity. But uh, like, it really was, uh, it's intuition. I think that's what that what that was intuitively. Like, yeah, you set some shit on fire and you have to go through the ashes and like start anew. That's what weaving uh, Miranda was with Patrick and, and Hero, right? Like, we were all just like skating and yet, I, I had a certain understanding, a poetic understanding, an artistic understanding. Patrick had a certain understanding. Hero had a visual understanding. And you weave and then pops out. Hmm. Yeah. 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 Did you read the book before or after? Yeah, I read that book. I didn't know nothing about that book. I was like, oh, the Obamas was fucking really cool. Uh, <laughs> they were. All right, all right. Let's see what this is about. And and I was enraptured, right? Like, it's 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 one of those, it's the way life is. It's the way the brain works, memory works, the way you you are never just linear. You are. Yeah. You are incessantly moving along multiple tangents, multiple lines. Um, you're considering the, you're considering history. You're considering the potential of the future. You're considering now. That's 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 what that was like. That dynamism always popping and happening, and these fragments in and out. So yeah, mm. I loved Emily in that. Emily's structuring in that regard. Yeah. So between the those fir- that first episode that you made, and I believe you got to finish it in L.A. What was it like? coming back after, I don't know how long of a break you took, but that year changed all of us, I feel like, and I imagine <laughs> you did, you as well, to some extent. It did, it did, my, my, my. Um, it's funny, I went to Santa Fe to do The Harder They Fall. So that was my fall of 2020. And then next year, so 2021, March, almost a full year. It was yeah, full, full year. year. Full year we come to shoot in Toronto. And so, you know, you've had a full, what is a full? Uh, an, uh, an experience, a, a, a total experience dealing mm-hmm. with the pandemic. And, and Canada's still not playing. They're, they're not playing at this point. You're coming, you're doing two weeks. You're, you're, um, you're testing every day. You're, you're in the space alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 I, it was it was like it was it was deja vu to a certain degree, except it's a hotel, <laughs> right? And, and it's 
yeah, you're, it's almost like, oh, shit, I didn't, didn't mean to be method, but here we go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but everybody had been in the thick of of all the other episodes by then in the in the after pandemic experience of Station Eleven. And so I think, yeah, it was there's a different kind of hope at that point especially with, you know, in dealing with our producers and dealing with folks who know the totality of the story. I, I dealt with nobody else. It was just, it was me and Gael and, and, and David, like that, those are my people. That was it. Like I saw Hamesh a couple of times and like, I was like, man, what are we doing? I don't know. All right. <laughs> right. And then he goes off and has a totally different experience. And, and I'm in this little, little bubble and I was back in a bubble again. So it's, it's this um, Groundhog Day kind of, kind of thing happening. And yet like being okay with it, like, oh, what is the, what is the little intimate thing that you're going to create today to make it, you know, to give it its uniqueness. And so that's what I was trying to, to do in those first two weeks of, of solitude and then coming out is like, yeah, because it was all of the the hotel stuff, all of uh, episode ten and the ending, <laughs> yeah, the, the ending, the yeah. ending. So where yeah. where Miranda gets to be a kind of a, a hero in a lot of ways, she does something very heroic, selfless, selfless. Yeah, selfless. Yeah, that's the that's the best word for it. I think effort to to the last of one's self. Mm-hmm. Yeah, give it, give it up. Like, it's like, give it up. Like, <laughs> that have, do people give it up to the end of themselves, like, throughout this? Like, and it's so, so, it's so tragic because people were, we, we're so weird, you know? <laughs> Would you do that for somebody, you yeah. know? So I think like that, I think I, I've been listening to a lot of people talk about the, talk about watching the show. And some folks mean like, I can't, I couldn't do it quite yet. Some folks being, I loved it, and my ass is sitting there watching every episode, crying, and I just, I just loved experiencing this and having the ability to look at it again, and and come away with a kind of hope after having the pre-experience, the post-experience, the watching it with the audience, and having kind, of, you know, looking a bit to see how people are engaging with it. It's, it's, uh, we still, I mean, you still struggle. We still struggle. We still try. Yeah. So I feel good about that. Yeah. The yeah. creative nature of us all. Yeah. There, there's the, the creativity of it. And there's the, like you were saying, the experience of being able to share it with people. Mm-hmm. I, I, I do want to rewind the clock a little bit. I know you'd done, you know, recurred and guest started a number of shows, um, not to mention your work uh, in theater, but in, in terms of Hollywood, <laughs> Uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, this did feel like a, a significant moment for you, especially in getting then to share your work and experience it with a, a large audience. Did, did it feel that way to you? Oh, my, my, my. I, I, Watchmen felt that way and, 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 and Station Eleven just felt cosmic. Hmm. Station Eleven, like I don't know, I just love Patrick. I just love Hero. Like, like, like when you, I, I've said this before. I've desired to live in a kind of buoyancy in my experience of the world as a human. Just, just, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's a bit of like taking the reins off and just allowing yourself to flow. 
And and that's what that was. I have no idea. You not, like I don't care about what else is going on. I'm fully entrenched. We're rolling. We're doing what we're doing. And that's what Station Eleven felt like. And it was the beginning, right? It was the beginning. So you're feeling your way through the dark. But it it, it felt like it felt like a moment in that I did not know what it was. Right. I mean, those are always fucking marvelous. <laughs> You can't put anything on it. The minute you put something on it, oh, man, that's ketchup. That's nasty. You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm making a sauce. It's going to have butter, and it's going to have salt, and it's going to have lemon juice, and, and I might throw some other stuff in there, and we'll see what happens. That's that's the marvelous part. Yeah. yeah. Something good came out of this one, whatever you guys put in it. Whatever it is. <laughs> 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 that makes me happy. That makes yeah. me happy. Yeah. So, so how did it feel coming off of it when you when you finished making the show? Did did it feel like it was something special? You know that you can't know going in, as you say, but especially given how much it was evidently resonating for you, what was it like to come off of that? I mean, I always want to do something special. I don't know what that is. Is that what is that? I I value everything like that, but I know when something is able to cook a long time then you are able to put the, you know, put it together really well. Like it's able to come together beautifully. It's more tender. Like mm. I'm not going to do food analogies all day, but if you smoke it, if you barbecue, if you, if you allow it to slow, slow roast or whatever, it's going to be good. You know, you got, you don't, you don't rush a gumbo. You, right. <laughs> you, you got to do this part, part of the process, do this part. And as weird as a pandemic and challenging and tragic as a pandemic was, it enabled us to know, have a certain knowledge. And, and pre was made pre and post was made post. Uh, you, can, you can't plan that. You don't want to plan that. So you come out better on the other side. Hopefully mm. more loving, hopefully more connected, hopefully interested in doing something that can, can marinate that long. Everything doesn't get to, but I like that. I like, I like the long, the long game. Hmm. And you went from that to filming Till, correct? Did I? no, no. I went from no. that to from scratch. Yeah, from scratch. Oh, from scratch, which is a yeah. limited series coming up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On Netflix. Yeah. Um, I, I did want to ask you about Till a little bit, just because oh. Station Eleven is so heavy and um, playing the lead role in this film, Mamie Till Mobley, um, Emmett Till's mother, right after that, must have felt like a pretty intense next thing to take on after From Scratch. I didn't want to do it. You didn't want to do it? I mean, it's, I it's a lot. It. It's one of those, like, I, I've been a, a, a load carrier for a long time. Um, I'm on sabbatical now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm on Greek sabbatical because it is a weight. We deserve a bit of rest. I uh, know um, the the literature, the conversations, the people that I admire and read and speak to and listen to are all having conversations about what bodies, what people rather, black women, the kind of weights that they carry. And Mamie Till Mobley is a pure like example of of a black woman carrying the invisible load that we we always have. That labor is. Uh, I don't know how she did that, right? Mm. I am an imagining, but I don't know. We're in the face of true, true terror, right? 
And our film explores when to, uh, when Emmett left to go visit with family and up to the end of the trial. So that's what we're, you're experiencing. This very concentrated moment of what it means to, to, to be a mother in such a, in such a, in such a state, in such a, in such a moment to become mm-hmm. a figure in, in the most tragic moment and, and, and to have stood as, as, strong willed and 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 erect as she did and with such grace in the face of real fucking terror there's no other word for it real fucking terror is um is amazing pure pure amazing and so it was a very spiritual experience to say the least (laughs) it was just a discipline i am not the most you know, high femme presenting all the time. But, you know, that is the the way of, of 55, right? 1955, when she is living and thriving in, in Chicago and doing, uh, doing things that all, most Black women weren't necessarily doing at the time, living a kind of privileged life and then revealing unto her that privilege does not afford Black people any kind of protection and living an isolated life where I'm I'm holding and hoarding my protection and then this tragedy still occurs and then having the wherewithal to come out of that and to know that community is still community becomes your effort community becomes your mission mothering is still a part of who you are even though you have lost your flesh as a result of that that's how people not like y'all understand that like this is women, the, the, the woman who experienced, who was prescient enough to say, I need media to understand what's happening to me before media was media. Whoa. Right. And mm-hmm. how amazing for her to be prescient in that moment and for the longevity of it, because here we are and we're dealing with a project that she desired, even at the time she wanted a film made. She wanted a film made because she knew telling her story was imperative, not just for her, but community, national community, local community, global community. And we can't thank her enough until the day she died, until the day she died. So (laughs) wait, right? Yeah. Wait. I hope she is buoyant right now. (laughs) Hmm. It sounds like in the end, you are glad you did it. Yes. You, you know, it's the tension. I want to feel the tension for a minute. Like it's that's 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 a part of the attraction, right? It's the tension in in doing the thing that scares the the shit out of you, yeah. and yet you dive anyway. Mm-hmm. So I know that I have to serve. I know that these are that 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 I don't always do things that are just fun. I do things to, to serve. And, and surely that was, a, this is, this is me serving my progenitors, the folks who have created space for me to be, mm. for us all to be, right? <laughs> yeah. Between this and, and Station Eleven, two projects of a lot of heaviness and a lot of significance to you in very different ways, how do you move between on camera and off? What does that process look like for you of playing these characters, but also having to take it off for a little bit, at least at a time? Whew. Uh, I'm playing. I'm playful. <laughs> I, I think I have to. Like even right now, like we like <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I need it. Like my body needs it. Um, grief and all of that stuff that sits inside of us. I um, I've I've in the last several months have employed 
acupuncture, physical therapy, therapy, chiropractor. I'm looking for all the comedy I can, you know, muster. And I'm particular about my comedy, but I like, like the, the humor of life, like I need it, you know, yeah. but that's, that's, a, that's in between, right? Yep. It's taking the time to recover, to restore, which is very important for all of us. But on set, it's, it's, uh, it's, it varies, it varies, it varies day to day. Some stuff is sometimes you gotta you gotta you got a day and you can't talk to nobody. Yeah. And sometimes you got a day where you you might have some levity, uh, and and you you dig into it. I love the community that is built in hair and makeup and costumes and production assistants and gaffers and grips and camera ops and ACs. Everybody is with me. I'm looking at everybody in the eyes like it, it's it's um, it's to let them know that they you know, we all we all together. We're all in this together uh, until <laughs> save my life. Heavy scenes some days, like some really, really pivotal stuff. Mm-hmm. And Bobby, our DP and the camera crew, they blessed me and they would they had on um, suits, not suits, mm-hmm. but like they had on ties. Mm-hmm. And it was so, it's such a warming, connective moment to know that you're not alone. You're not, because you're not the only one having that experience. You're having a specific experience, but they, they in the grief with you. And so we touch, we hug, you know, <laughs> we, we find joy and laughter. I think the film is trying to do that too. The film wants you to know that there, there was a life, mm-hmm. uh, before it, there was a life through it, and there is a life that that was after. And I'm looking for I'm looking for teeth and hilarity at any moment I possibly can. <laughs> Understandably, I, I'm crass and all that good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you got a little on Heart of They Fall. That's another. What you were talking about the crew. That's another another movie that I think of where just like the amount into that production, I imagine was pretty fun for you to be around. Yeah, no, James is a light. Like James literally like, like the light that falls like beaming down, like I'm gonna catch you, I'm gonna catch you. And you're gonna be, you're gonna be in this moment with me. In fact, okay, we putting on music today, we dancing. Me and James dance like several times, like just grooving on set. Like he, 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 he wants you to, he wants this, the experience of making the movie to be one thing. And then the movie as presented, as shared with, with the audience is another thing. So I, I really love learning that from him and choosing, you know, taking up a different manner in which to to be in the making of something. Yeah. Hmm. Well, uh, as you talk to more people like me and do more of these more public facing projects, suddenly you are everywhere. How do you do? I am not <laughs> I'm very concentrated. <laughs> um, how do you feel about the exposure, though? It's it's got to be somewhat new. Uh, I'm a quiet person. I'm a private person. I don't I I don't mind talking, but I mean it's it's different. It's different. I have a I have a son, who I want to have a life, uh, mm-hmm. a regular like life as much as he wants to, and I want people to treat me as a as a human. Like I think that's just all I can do as much as I possibly can so people can know that whatever you see in me, whatever you're experiencing in me is very much a part of you and however you are presenting yourself in the world and seeking to make yourself in the world. And so uh, I hope that I'm, I hope that I'm giving that off and I'm sharing that. And, um, and I want to do that as much 
in an intimate manner as opposed to in digital spaces. I have a social media presence, but that's 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 a Private. professional dynamic, right? Yeah. I'd much rather like just be cool and engage in person and be like, hey, what's up? It's not about all of the performative picture and all that stuff. I'm I'm really just want to be human with folks. Mm-hmm. So I'm 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 gonna make it as 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 uh, unbothering as I possibly <laughs> can. <laughs> Let's just Love be it. humans together, y'all. Let's just yeah. be humans. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll wrap with a with a human question, which is in all these very different roles, really basic and really complicated question. What do you love about acting? What do you get out of acting? And particularly these roles, um, yeah, what do they leave you with? <laughs> That's an easy question. <laughs> Why do I have no words now? <laughs> acting, being, it's just been a part of my life since I was a kid, since I was literally like four or five years old. And I get a vitality in the experience of it. I get community. I get to recall aspects of myself that I may have forgotten. And to do that with people on a set, in a theater, in a theater on stage or in a theater in a, in a cinema edifice, I get to, it's, 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 a, it's a constant reconnection to, to, to being. Because it's not just being a human, it's being a lot of things. It's just, uh, I don't know, I, guess, I think it's also getting to a stillness and a quietude, you know? Mm. Everybody wants to feel a surge, the pulse of a moment. And when everybody's energy is concentrated into a moment together, whether you're saying something or not, folk know that. And that's, that's hypnotic. And it's transformative for us all. And so I like to be a part of that, whether I am an audience member or a cast member or anything. It's to be there and to, to serve the moment is, is a holy experience. So, hmm. hallelujah. <laughs> Can't think of a better note to end on. Daniel Deadweiler, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, David. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Review's Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. And now we're going to go to my interview with Cooper Reif, who was a huge breakout success at this year's Sundance Film Festival with his film Cha-Cha Real Smooth, which won the Grand Jury Prize, uh, which is pretty much the top Sundance prize. You might remember it went to CODA. Uh, the year before, and this movie was also picked up by Apple TV+. Plus. Um, he had a previous breakout hit with Shit House, uh, which was a big South by Southwest winner a few years ago, um, kind of right at the start of the pandemic. So he's had this, like, breakout moment entirely in COVID times, which I think has been very strange. Um, 
He's kind of famously young. He is 25 years old and has made two feature films. So you 25? Uh, I know. I know. <laughs> we're all allowed to grapple with that on our own time. Um, and he also stars in this movie alongside Dakota Johnson. He plays uh, a bar mitzvah party starter. He's more or less a guy who's graduated from college, doesn't know what to do with himself, and kind of gets entangled with the single mom played by Dakota Johnson um, and, and grows up a little bit in the process. And I think we've all kind of learned to be skeptical maybe of the, like, young English white guy learns about himself uh, dramas, but he's making them better and in a way that fits with 2022, I think. Uh, you also saw Cha-Cha Real Smooth, right, David? Yeah, no, and I, I completely agree. I was also a big fan of, of Shit House, and, and I think generally the writing in his movies is so natural, and when that can come through in the performances, and, and he and Dakota Johnson have, such this, have this easy, natural, really funny rapport that I think comes through in a in a really authentic way. And, and it's it's a pleasure to spend some time with him. Yeah, and it was so lovely talking to him too. And I, he's been mentored by Jay Duplass for a long time. And I can, I can kind of see him really aiming for that path where it's not just making his own films, but helping other people and producing and like kind of creating the 2020s version of what the Duplass brothers and Joe Swanberg and that kind of crew did uh, in the 2000s, like being able to, to make a path forward. Um, and I, you know, I think he's got pretty much all the tools he needs to do it. <laughs> um, so let's hear my conversation with Cooper Reif. Well, Cooper Reif, thank you for joining us on Little Gold Men. It's been a long time since Sundance, so I hope you're ready to uh, talk about this movie again. Yeah, I hope I remember everything about it. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like the odds of you remembering the details of something you created yourself and were in, like, I'm counting on it. I'm imagining it's pretty burned into your DNA at this point. I think so, yes. And I've done I've done quite a few interviews. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Are you getting used to it at all? I I feel like doing press can be a really unnatural thing to adjust to when you're when you're starting out. It's intense to repeat the same things over and over again. That yeah. it's not it's not natural, yeah. But I but I I feel grateful and yeah. Lovely. Yeah. I was doing an interview with someone else this week who was talking about how weird it is to be, like, summarized by somebody else who's trying to, like, describe, like, who you are and what your deal is, which is an inevitable thing about being profiled. But I had never thought about how weird that must be because it must be really weird to be, like, X, 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 Y, and Z thing is what Cooper Rife is. It's uh, it's weird. It's even weirder when they're all very similar and they're all the same. (laughs) You start to realize, okay, that is how people see me. That is the vibe, uh, for now at least. Yeah. Um, well, I want to start by just going back to the shithouse premiere at South By, um, which was virtual and weird, but also, you know, launched your career in all these specific ways. How soon after that was the birth of Cha-Cha Real Smooth? Oh, it was, I started writing a character named Domino. She was basically just a mother of a disabled kid whose life stages are defined by our kids' life stages and will always be. And that was such a character that I had written in college. And then I made Shit House, and people started asking what I wanted to make next. And I really wanted to make this TV show next. And so every every time I could, I would just pitch this TV show. But then some people were like, we don't do TV. Can you tell me about a movie? And so I would I – would, I, there was a couple things that I was – well, I have these things in mind. And Cha Cha was one of them, but it was really just about this mom. And so for the first, like, 10 – pitches of that it was just i think moms are cool and people are like that's that's not a movie idea and then at some point i thought of uh i had this other character that i was thinking about which is just the person that i know best which is a 
22-year-old dumbass. And so I kind of put them together and was trying to figure out a way for them to keep coming into contact. And when I had the bar mitzvah circuit idea, then I got really excited to pitch that. And I uh-huh. um, pitched the first person I pitched that bar mitzvah idea to was Ro Donnelly, who ended up producing Cha Cha Real Smooth. So yeah, that, it was born really, the idea was born in college, but then the real like hook of it was born the day before I pitched it to Ro and I hadn't written the script. So I wrote it, I wrote it the week, the week after I met Ro. And I feel like that period after you've had a, a film break the way that Shithouse did can be really overwhelming where you've got a lot of people, like you said, saying, what do you want to do next? And I imagine a lot of people being like, here's what I think you should do next. This is the career path you have in place. How do you keep your bearings and, and stick with something like an idea you'd had for years and not just kind of like, go running after whatever the shiny thing someone's dangling at you is. Just knowing what you're going to be really bad at. <laughs> I think I there are certain things that people thought I should do and thought would be in my wheelhouse. And I just very, I think I know myself pretty well. And I know what I'm not going to be able to offer much to. So that's how. I mean, I know that in... When people make their first movies, a lot of times they make something really small or set in one room because of budget or, you know, mm. uh, talent – not talent, but like skill constraints. And Shithouse really is that kind of movie. But it sounds like that's the kind of movie that you would have made if you had $20 million, like something intimate and character-driven like that. Definitely. It's it's this tricky thing where I was just talking to someone, talking to Jay Duplass, and he was like, dude, less money is better. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> um but there's the there's a certain point where you want everyone on set to be taken care of and supported in the right ways and to be happy working and so you want as many days as possible but like there are a certain there's a certain sweet spot that I think I've found and I really want to st- I stay in that sweet spot which is making a movie where people are really just like it's just two people talking for most of it. And maybe there's a little hook that can trick people into thinking it's going to be a big party movie. But at the end <laughs> of the day, it's going to be two characters talking about depression. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Duplass brothers really emblemized that exact kind of movie when they started breaking out about 15 years ago. And it's almost something like I'm so happy to see that people still want to make movies like that, that it wasn't seen as like a passing fad. Is it hard to convince people that like movies about talk about two people talking in a room and movies and not TV, which I think is where a lot of these stories tend to go these days? Uh, is that an uphill battle for you to get people to get behind it? Sometimes, definitely. I mean, with Cha Cha, was definitely a battle. But I think what what I've luckily learned and what I can luckily point to now is that there's a sweet spot that makes it's very lucrative, mm. and people don't re, people don't think about a movie with two people talking as uh, something that's going to make you a lot of money. But when you make it for the right amount of money, then you have a, maybe a person like Dakota Johnson in it, uh, that, that like Chacha did really well. And yeah. so like it now like picture star endeavor who the, the two companies that made that movie, like I know that they're going to give the next talky filmmaker less grief. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, are you okay knowing and, and being involved with those financial details? I feel like there are some directors who just want to make the art and have the producers deal with it, but it sounds like you're kind of comfortable with the commerce side of things. 
I am. I have to be. Like, yeah. you, there's really no choice. Like, especially when you don't have. I've only had the experience of charge. Like with with shit house, we had no money, so I didn't really have to deal with anything because it was like, here's your penny, and um, <laughs> like, all right, I'm not gonna be able to use this in any way. Yeah. <laughs> um. But but so. With Cha-Cha, my experience was, hey, figure out how to save your movie like every single week. Like there was, there was this like constant, how are we going to cut six days? And like, I'm just like, what? So there was, it's, I mean, making Cha-Cha was so massively difficult. And I'm hoping that this next movie I'm making won't be as difficult because I'll be able to say, no, I think we can I think it would be smart if you guys threw in an extra however blank amount of money. Or, like, we can use this location. Or, like, there's so many nitty-gritty decisions like that in making a small movie like this work. Yeah, but for Cha-Cha, there was one person, a couple people, who just decided, it actually, we're going to have to shave, we're going to have to shave a million off of this. Uh-huh. And and you're like, what are you talking, what? And it's just like, well, we just don't. Like it's not smart for this to be this. It needs to be a million less. And and then they tell you if it's not a million less, your movie is going to go away. And they're really smart because they know that you're a young filmmaker who has poured their heart and soul in this and you're going to figure it out. And so that's that's the thing. That's the dangerous thing. And that's why it's really important to – I've told like other filmmakers it's just important to – to like ha- have a backup plan and like to mm. know your know your worth and like know that movies can go away and and people will use people people have that leverage of like you being a passionate filmmaker and it's slimy and awful but it's it's just the way things work sometimes yeah I mean, when when Sundance happens and the movie has the success that it does, did you feel that weight lift like knowing that that kind of thing wasn't as likely to happen anymore? Oh man, I mean, not just I, I'm not I'm not like an angry person, but it wasn't just a weight. It was like I wanted to like I was like gritting my teeth, like hoping to like be in certain people's faces. Like, can you like look at this? Uh, like, look at like, me now. Like, yes, yeah, or no, uh-huh. look me, look me in the eyes, and like, let's just have a moment where we look at each other and say how wrong you were, <laughs> and like like that 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 stuff like really because I mean. Yeah, it was it was hard, and so many people worked so hard and 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 helped in so many ways. But there was there were these like these parameters that everyone just said yes to working inside. Where and I was constantly like, why are we saying yes? This is this is hmm. this is not right. Uh-huh. Um, but and and now I I I've had some conversations where I'm just like, man, I really want you to tell me how 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 wrong you were. And, and I, and the biggest part of that is don't treat anybody else like that. Like that, yeah. that's not the way you shouldn't be just spending every second of making a movie, trying to prove something. And cause it, it felt like that sometimes. Yeah. And, and, um, and I've been very clear with like my producers of this next movie that I'm doing that I do not want to do that. Like you're, you're either in with me or you're, you're not. Yeah. Is that something that someone like Jay Duplass can warn you is going to happen? Did he did he experience the same thing and 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 warn you? Yes, but he's a much nicer guy. Like he's, <laughs> he he's, does seem very sweet. He's so sweet. And but no, he and you know what? He's got his brother Mark who I think is a bit they've figured it out where like they they protect themselves very mm. well. 
Or they have each other to kind of balance exactly. off, and, and you just yeah. have yourself. I mean, you, you work with other people, but protecting your vision is just you. Yeah, no. I mean, well, I have. I honestly, Roe Donnelly was like my fierce protector, and and she was always, and 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 she was always the person that I. She's also very nice, so I was. She, I would vent to her and say, "I think you're being too nice right now." But she was always fiercely protecting, like the the vision and and her her the crew and. But but yeah, with Jay and Mark, one guy gets to be like, they can go back and forth between I'm going to play a uh, nice guy and you can play bad, bad guy. Good cop, bad cop, classic format. Exactly. So I don't have that necessarily. <laughs> yeah. And so when you when you start working with Rose, she works with Dakota Johnson. So you kind of have Dakota there all along. And I think you said you wrote the part like with her in mind but was that part of the initial discussion having her in it was that always a, a possibility for cha-cha yeah because i i really i pitched it to roe and i didn't really have any of this the actual script and then the next day i met with dakota she was like in greece and it was late at night she's about to film a lost daughter oh, nice. and speaking of moms I, my god yeah exactly and so i I told her about the part and she was like, I'm in. And so then the next day I started writing it just for her. And I remember I was watching so many, so many Dakota clips on YouTube while writing it. So it was very much written for her. Yeah. Yeah. Because she, the character of Domino and Dakota, I think both have this ability to sit in silence and say something that doesn't totally make perfect sense, but not elaborate on it, which is not a power I have. So maybe that's why I notice it so much. And that feels like something you really have to know that you're writing for yes. someone who can pull that off. She, you don't need. I always say it about her. You don't need to explain things, and like the, you don't have to have that that exposition with her. You can really tell the story through the lens of this twenty two year old dumbass because she is gonna tell you so much, tell the audience so much, even when Andrew necessarily isn't comprehending all of it because he's a twenty two year old dumbass. <laughs> Well, why why were moms? I mean, not just Domino, but also Andrew's uh, mom, played by Leslie Mann. Like, those are two really interesting parallel characters. And you said you've been, you know, wrote this character in college. Why did a, a mom specifically interest you? Well, Freud would have a lot to say about the movie. <laughs> the whole movie to me was about Andrew's like make happy complex. Like he mm. spent a lot of time in his childhood protecting and taking care of his mom and. And I think he gra always is gravitating towards the person in the room that he thinks has the most open, vulnerable heart and is trying to help those people get, get strong. Or, or Yeah. And there are two scenes that are back-to-back, -back and it's Domino and Andrew in the kitchen, and then right after that, it's Mom and Andrew in the kitchen. And, and, it was, and with the mom, it's that scene ends with her talking about how he, he grew up too too fast or you grew up fast as a kid and then it ends with her saying like sorry and yeah. and that's just my way of trying to say i think domino represents his mom in a, a lot of ways and and i think andrew doesn't have that relationship with his mom anymore because stepdad greg is in the mix and yeah and andrew is so mean to him so mean <laughs> because, because and he's, he's so like, nice i know he's so nice <laughs> i think it's just that andrew comes home and he's like wait I'm her husband. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but and why are you here? What do you? What is this house? But um, but yeah, no. I think that's what I love about the movie is that Domino is representing something um, bigger. And I think at the end when Andrew's crying pretty hard, I think it's not just because he's gonna miss. He is gonna miss Domino and Lola. But I think he's been 
relieved of something bigger mm. and and only domino could do that i think as much as mom wants to say i'm happy i think hearing about domino's happiness and domino telling him to go figure out who he is is really a big a big massive thing for him as a person did you say that she was always named domino because it's not like the, the most common of names was that was it that from the beginning she i did probably say that but i i actually was gonna say because her name was kate Mm. Her original name was Kate in college. And then when Dakota came along, I was like, that girl is not named Kate. <laughs> <laughs> Although, didn't she, wasn't she on a show called, like, Ben and Kate? Wasn't that what that show was called? Oh, I don't, I haven't I'm seen I'm going to look this up while I talk to you. Because <laughs> I think she has played a Kate. But anyway, I agree with you. Yes. Yeah, they got that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she totally played Kate on a on a sitcom. Anyway. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Um, but no, I... <laughs> well, as a Katie, yeah. I'd be proud to be shared with um, Dakota Johnson. But so, so then, how did Domino come, become the name? I don't know. I, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I mean, that is because I, I thought about because um, Domino and Lola Kirk are Jemima Kirk sisters, and having a oh Domino and a God, Lola, I, I wondered I, if that was in there somewhere. No, it was not on purpose. But <laughs> Row and Row one time, like really late in the game, was like, "Wait, Lola and Domino Kirk." Are two people, and I was like, "Oh God, let's hope they never see it." I'm actually friends with Lola, and I have not oh. talked to her about it. And I am very scared for her to see it. I feel like it's an honor. I would, uh, I would go with it. <laughs> well, it's funny because, like, it's Donna's her older sister, not her mother. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, but, but yeah, it's she. <laughs> I just, I know the conversation I'm going to have with her is like, "Did you name me after?" <laughs> <laughs> or do you that character after me? Um, yeah, but yes. I, it was interesting what you were saying about the realizations that Andrew comes to in terms of like what he doesn't know and kind of realizing what he doesn't know and not having his life defined by things because you are defining your life in a way that most 20-somethings don't. And I'm sure that you have thought about this in creating these more aimless characters that you are then playing. But do you get jealous of your characters that they get to figure shit out and you're kind of on a path that, you know, is the one that you have chosen, but it is, you, you are defining yourself in a way that Andrew certainly does not have to yet. Yeah. But I, but I think I really relate to, cause it was funny. Someone was saying, I, people have pointed out the difference, like, Oh, you as a person, you're doing all of these things and you're working so hard and Andrew's not, he's just working at meat sticks. But Andrew, I relate so hard to Andrew because the dude is given 120% in his relationship <laughs> with Domino and Lola. Yep. And I, and I'm doing the same thing with uh, making movies, but after I made Cha-Cha, especially after it sold, I really took a step back. Like I actually like I'm doing therapy for the first time mm. and I'm like, I'm really, I very much relate to not having the slightest clue who I am and like who I am like in a, room without my laptop and without my writing and without uh-huh. diving into something 120%. So, so I, I do really actually really, and yeah, I, I guess I envy that he has that time to figure out who he, are, who he is, but like I, but I also really have a moment right now. I'm so lucky in that I, I can have that and I can, I don't need to dive into the, the next project. I can take some time and do some some of my 20s. Yeah. I think you said previously that you think of yourself as a writer primarily. Like, do you think mm-hmm. there's ever a point where you would not be a filmmaker and write other things or write for other people? Like, does that path still seem open to you? 
I, I, so I've done a lot of thinking recently and I, I know that I'm making a movie this year in September and then I have this, this show that I really want to do after, but I, I got, I'm, I'm saying it now. I think after that I'm going to, I'm in the middle of trying to start a production company and my big goal and my big dream and how I really see my life is not being a writer, director, or actor, but rather just producing other people's work and trying to champion other people. Because I I think I've always wanted to be a part of making movies, mm-hmm. and I just kind of happened into doing all of the things <laughs> because, because no one was – I didn't have a single – connection and and when I made shit house I asked like 20 people to direct it but then at some point I realized no one wanted to direct my small college love story for mm. no money and so I so I did it and then with cha-cha that was like what I had sold with shit house that's why I ended up doing it uh-huh. and I think I'm in this path where really the past 2 months I've been thinking about it a lot and what what do I actually want to do and I think what I want to do is just like be a part of making movies and 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 help young people like and I want I want to be that like fierce protector that I think everyone probably needs in this filth filthy business and <laughs> so I, I I think that's what I want to do ultimately. well that's a Duplass model too right like exactly. they they yes. pivoted to making other people's movies pretty quickly after they had yeah. some um cachet there yes and you're not acting in the next one right I'm not acting in the next one does that feel like a um like a weight off your shoulders Oh yeah, it feels like I feel so selfish, so much more self-assured. Yeah, I'm like just trusting myself as a director, and I know that I like to be close to my actors, but I don't need to be so close that I'm literally in the scene with them. <laughs> well, and like I think it gives you a shared language, even if you're not actually on camera together. Like that, they, that you know, the vulnerability the actors can have in a way that you might not. If you had and I'll be vulnerable camera. too. I, yeah. I think it's really important as a director to be emotionally available when you're behind the monitor. Like I don't want to. I don't want to be this cold and distant puppeteer. Like I, I want to be in get bloody with the characters. And are there um, directors other than JD Plus maybe who you look at as a either a style of how they do the directing or how the movies turn out that that you want to follow in footsteps of in some way? Yeah, I, I love. I love. When I think about specifically as a director and I think about on set and probably how they, I've never obviously been on the, this person's set, but David O. Russell is someone who, the way his movies have this kinetic energy about them. But my favorite filmmakers are like all across the board. Like I love, I love Sofia Coppola. I love like Greta Gerwig and the Duplass brothers and... Yeah, I love what you said in another interview about Greta Gerwig, like affection for her characters, which I think is just like a, the thing that makes all of those movies work so well. And oh, I don't yeah, think enough directors totally. do that somehow. Yeah. I don't know why everybody doesn't do that. Yeah. That does it for today's interview episode. We'll be back on Thursday with our usual roundtable conversation. You can find us in the meantime at VanityFair.com, on Twitter at LittleGoldMen, and on our own. I am at Katie Rich. And David? David Canfield, 97. Please text with us also at subtext, join subtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 917-809-7096. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs.
I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. From P- 